You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning to you all. All right, my name, has, uh, as Matt said, is Rafael Mgandla, and uh, yeah, it's a privilege to be back here. Um, and not only that, I'm so thankful for for you as a church because we, ever since we began, um, we replanted City Church in 2015, uh, and um, and Liberty um, came alongside us, and you've supported us in prayer financially, and um, just just know that like uh, there is a gospel work that is actually thriving uh, in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. That uh, that is very grateful for you. Uh, so, so thank you so much. And not only that, Matt and Shay have been really good friends, uh, and, and the Robinsons as well. Uh, just really walked, uh, it, it's amazing, like in our network, X29, uh, just to have like pastor friends, uh, people that at least we can walk through tough situations together. And these guys have prayed for us, uh, supported us, um, and we've walked through some valley of tears together, uh, especially just uh, as we go through just ministry. So um, if you have your Bibles, just could you open some, some 73? Uh, that's where we are, some um, 73. And if, if, if you can just like, I'm just going to walk through it. Um, I'm going to just begin. Um, I'm going to walk through it. Uh, just outline it with you probably for the first 15, uh, 15, 18 minutes. Uh, just outline it as we, as we go along. So, uh, if you want to just kind of take out a pen, mark something, do something with that, uh, that'd be great. Um, so I promise you, uh, it's going to get better as we, as we, as we move through this. Uh, but yet at the same time, this is probably like a very difficult sum for me because uh, this is one of my favorites, and uh, yeah, so it's a terrible thing to be doing a PhD on the book of Psalms, and and then you have to preach on the Psalms. So yeah, at our church, I'm African, so they allow me to preach at least like uh, probably an hour and a half, but <laughs> we're going to try to get out of this. So um, let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness over us. We thank you that your goodness never changes in the midst of um, various circumstances. And so, Lord, even today, God, we ask for your goodness to encounter us. Lord, may you meet us where we are, but please do not leave us where we are. Transform us by your goodness. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Psalm 73 is, um, so we're going to get to see Psalm 73 is written by Asaph, who is a Levite. Um, and that's, this is a Levite that David had placed in, in charge of temple worship in Jerusalem. So he's a worship leader. Uh, so Asaph, uh, like John says, uh, if, if he was here today, you would find him in Nashville uh, wearing skinny jeans and drinking lattes nonstop, right? But like this is actually what, 
what he does. He confesses of a time when he almost stumbled, um, especially when he was looking at the world around him. And then so here, uh, what we're going to get to see as we walk through this uh, is that we're going to really just get to see a man who is struggling. Uh, and you and I, uh, we are going to face, as long as we have believed in Jesus, we're going to face struggle in life. And one of the greatest struggles we're going to face is going to be uh, where you have this question at the center of your life, where is it? Where you feel like God has shortchanged you, where you feel like your, your service and what you have done, you have nothing to show for it. So there will come a time when faith seems so impractical and when you feel like you've got nothing to show, that faith really does work. For me, I've been at the crossroads of this a lot of times when, uh, whether it was my sister, 24, dying of HIV AIDS while I was a, a, a missionary in, uh, with Youth with a Mission, but holding her like a little, like a little baby in my arms and, and, but saying to God, but God, I've served you. Couldn't you have at least pulled through here? And not only that, like, I remember just burying my head, uh, burying my head in, in my office in William as I was uh, having booked uh, my airfare to, to actually travel to go see my father, but on the traveling on Monday, but on that Wednesday, I was FaceTiming him, him breathing his last breath and having to just like feel as if, God, where is it? Like, God, faith works, where is it? And, and not only that, you just heard about uh, my wife recently uh, just being diagnosed. You know when they throw the cancer word at you? It doesn't matter what type of cancer it is. Like It just disorients you. And then at the end of the day, just faith will come with trials. And there's going to be moments where you're going to have to root yourself in the goodness of God, but the goodness of God is going to be tested in your life over and over. And so if you're going to walk away with anything today, it's going to be this, that it is not possible for a person to see and to trust in the eternal while your focus is on the temporal. It's going to be very impossible. So... Um, so what you, what you begin to see is uh, verse 1 is a title of the psalm, and in fact, it's a conclusion of the psalm. Uh, at the end of it all, this is what he is. The psalmist is confident of God's goodness. He says this, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What the psalmist is saying here is that I'm going to tell you a story and I'm going to tell you what happened to me. And the thing I want to leave you with is the goodness of God. This is the goodness of God in the psalmist here is a tried and true principle. The psalmist here is saying that like I want to leave you with the goodness, with the goodness of God. But in order for you to experience the goodness of God, you're going to have to guard your heart and make sure that your heart is pure. Your heart sees him in his true light. So he was tempted to think that there was times when God is not good, but yet he realizes that he was wrong. So verse 1 is a title, uh, and then he now begins to walk us through his dilemma here. Um, in verse 2 to 3, he says, I was confused about God's goodness. And then so he says this, but as for me... 
As for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. And then so here what he's saying is that um, that word nearly slipped or nearly stumbled, it talks about a cup that is tilting to the point that he's, he says his whole livelihood almost spilled over. He almost stumbled. And what is it that actually almost made him stumble? It was the sin of envy. Uh, look at verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, that word envy uh, is a strong competitive sense describing zeal for another's, pro, another, another's property or, 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 or state. And so he's looking around. And when he's looking around and he begins, envy begins to corrode his own heart. Here, what you get to see is that envy is like an acid that eats at your faith very slowly. When you begin to look at what you do not have, what you want to have, and then all of a sudden he thought God was shortchanging him. That God, you promised that faith was going to work, but faith here is not working for me. And then so he begins to have this distorted perspective that you're going to see in verse 4 to 12 where he says this, he spends time scrutinizing those that are in the world. And when he's looking at them and he sees this is what those that believe in God. And so the backdrop to this Psalm 73 actually happens to be right in the middle of the Psalter, right? Right in the middle of the book of Psalms, where from there we're going all the way to, to praise in 150. But at the beginning, what is the promise of the whole Psalm, the whole Psalter? At the beginning, the gateway to the Psalter is that if you plant yourself in God's word, and you plant and meditate on it, mumble on it all day, you will be like a tree that is planted by the riverside, and you're going you're gonna to blossom, you're going to flourish in season and out of season. And in Psalm 73, he's questioning that. He begins to look, and you're going to get to say, he begins to look around, and he sees the wicked are the ones who are flourishing, and the righteous are not. And then he begins to say, God, is your word true anymore? Right? And then he begins to look around. And when he looks around, some two, uh, so the message of someone is the fact that God's word is what you need to be planted in. And then, but yet really the, the theme of the whole Psalter comes in some two where God rules. He is the one who rules. And if he rules, he's the one who has the last laugh, Right? He has the last laugh. He looks and he has set up his kingship in Zion. And then we're going to get to see that in Psalm 46 and 47 and 48 where God is king and he rules. And there is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God. And so, But he's not seeing that. So where is God even during this time? When he's looking around, he begins to see the wicked are having a party. But God is, where is the God that rules? So look at verse 4. For they have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and they are slick, right? Here in the U.S., obviously, like if you, if, you, if you gain a little bit of weight, everybody looks at you in a funny way. In Africa, if you gain weight, you live the good life. 
You live the good life. If you become skinny, everybody thinks, hey, are you sick or what's wrong with you, right? And he's saying here, they, they have no burdens whatsoever. They're not, trouble. they're, they're not troubled like other human beings. Look at verse 5. They're not in troubles as others are. They live a very exempt life. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Can you see why the storm is brewing inside him? Because he's the one who's meant to be actually what? Living a flourishing life. But he's looking at them. They're the ones who have no trouble whatsoever. But it's not only their lives, the, 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 the life that they live, but it's also the fact that like they've got conceited hearts. And not only that, they've got these cruel hands. They, dis, they, they display pride and violence like jewelry. And, it's so, and, and what, what jewelry does is that you see it from afar, right? It's what we call the bling, right? You can see it out. Look at this in verse 6. They're, therefore, their pride is like a, their necklace. And violence covers them as a garment. Right? So he's looking at them. They... They exercise violence all across. And so unrighteousness is thriving at this moment. But God, you are king. Where are you at this moment? And he says this in verse 7, Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. Right? They've got these corrupt mouths. Right, where, 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 not only that, whatever it is that they desire, their hearts overflow with what they desire they have. What they desire they have, and so they can, they can be able to ask for anything. And, and, and verse 8 to 11 even just kind of helps you to see the connection from uh, in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is that they scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression, and they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues, what, strut through the earth. Their tongues here are painted as these big giants that walk through the earth, and they, they can have anything that they want. Right? They threaten oppression, and they seem, no one is holding them accountable. Right? And their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, listen to this. This is where the problem comes in. As the psalmist looks around, he begins to see the problem is that even the Christians are coming in and they're actually putting a stamp of approval on their, on their, their flourishing. They're actually migrating to their way of life. Therefore, his people, whose people? God's people, his people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. And they say, and this is actually what they say, how can God know? Right? Is there knowledge in the most high? And in fact, at this moment, this sounds almost like Psalm 42, 43, and 44, where, where the psalmist is hearing them mocking and they're saying, is God even, is he even alive? This sounds like Second Kings where Elijah is mocking the prophets of Baal and say, is he sleeping? Let him wake up. What is he doing? God, are you sleeping at this moment? They're saying, God, is, does he even know? Is he omniscient anymore? Is he omnipotent anymore? Is he, where is he at this moment? 
You claim that he is king. Is he even king anymore? And then so you can see even other believers are now starting to go to them and saying, surely their life actually works. There's better flourishing in their world. And so this right here gives you almost a picture of what Jesus is going to be talking about in Luke chapter 4 in the parable where, where it's, it's when the word is planted, but the cares of the world comes and sweeps over those that it believed at some point and then sweeps them over because they see the alternative truly works. Right? And then so he says this, It says, the wicked are always happy. In verse 12, they are carefree and they are so wealthy. Behold, these are the wicked. They are always at ease. They increase in riches, right? And so he begins to have this disgruntled faith. His faith is in trial at this moment. And you and I are going to face that, this right here, where your faith is actually being tried. Does it really truly work? Whether it's in the area of purity, whether it's in the area of contentment, whether it's in the area of your work, whether it's in the area, wherever it's at, does God's word truly work? And here what was being threatened was, do you stay planted and meditating on God's word? Or do you go and join those that have gone? Do you still believe God is king? That he is going to right every wrong? Or do you abandon even singing with the people of God, Asaph, and go and join them? Because this works right So this is actually what begins to, this is like a thousand paper cuts on Asaph, where he begins to have this debilitating pain. Look at verse 13. All in vain. This is where the trial finally breaks his back. All in vain I've kept my heart clean. God, worshiping you, has it's been in vain. Like, I mean, like, why, why am I saving myself? Why, why am I following your word, God? It's been in vain. And I've washed my hands in innocence, right? He says, clearly the alternative way works. Indeed, it works better than the way of Israel. How bad can it be if it produces happy results? Right, this is where now just finally everything kind of breaks Verse 15, he is so glad that he, verse 14, he says, For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. That's where he lets us in in what's going on. He says that, man, all day long I've been, I've been scoffed at, I've been mocked, and there's every single thing around me seems like it says, where is your God? Where is your God? Why do you keep on believing it? This is almost exactly what Job is going through as well when his wife is looking at him and saying, are you still going to keep believing even when you have lost everything? Is there a place where you can still hold on to faith when it's like this? 
And I want to let you know, for me, it's happened over and over and over. Like just over and over when HIV AIDS has taken my mother, my father, and my sister. And then when cancer has come threatening. And then not only that, oh, when, when, you, when you have a son, my adopted son, Liam, when I'm holding him and running to the emergency room with second degree burns uh, and, and just running. And a lot of these thoughts have come. And I've been able to say, God, I'm stricken all day long. Is there still, and not only that, when, when somebody walks into church and calls you all the racial words you could ever find, and they tell you to go back to Africa where you came from, and all those things. Listen, when those things come in, wave after wave and wave after wave, faith is tested. But that's when faith has to hold still. Amen? Then verse 15 says, Hey, there are some moments where you have to just hold your tongue and hold to the faithfulness of God. There's some times where you have to speak your mind, but then there's some times when you have to be concerned about who you're going to be betraying at that moment. Look at verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And so he holds these words inside. And they just, he suffers oppression upon oppression as he's holding on to these. And verse 16, he says, But when I thought to understand this, it seemed like a wearisome task. But then, look at verse 17. This is where the change actually happens. He says, And then I entered the Lord's sanctuary. Then I entered the Lord's sanctuary, and things begin to change and unraveled. And he says, I discerned their end. And in fact, the sanctuary is this, this word, like the sanctuary of God, is actually like in Hebrew, an intensive plural, which actually suggests what? The glory of God. The only text that can actually help you see this text in a, in a, in a, in a wonderful light, the only one that illustrates this is Moses standing at the cleft of the rock. And when God comes in and declares himself, the Lord, the Lord, steadfast and righteous, and this is actually what you get to see here. He says when he came, he finally got to see who God is. He is confronted with a vision of how mighty God is and his holiness, his saving acts. And, and the people of God are rehearsing the works of God before him. And all of a sudden he comes to an understanding of the fact that like, no, it's not over until God. He's going to have the last love. He's going to have the last laugh. And look at verse 17. Until I, and it says that until I went to the sanctuary. And it says in verse 18, truly, if you can underline that, that there is a certainty there. Truly, you've set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. And not only that, he sweeps them away and how they are destroyed in a moment. And they are swept away by other terrors. And like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, you rouse yourself and you despise them like phantoms. And he says that they are like a dream. That like, yes, they sprout and they look like, they, 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 they look like they're prosperous today, but they're like just that plant that, get, that sprouts very quickly, but the sun comes and burns it within a day, right? 
So yes, they are strutting in pride, but they, they, God, God is actually going to come and execute vengeance. And so in verse 21 to 28, it begins a pathway of repentance. And it says this in verse 21, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, right? And he says this, he says this, when I was pricked in heart, and here he gets to show us that this, has, he, this had affected him even to the core, right? And he says this, I was brutish and ignorant, and I was like a beast towards you. And he says this, like, he gives us a picture of the state of his heart. He says he was like now an animal that lacks understanding, overtaken by desire. Animals are the ones that you have to literally tame them in order for you to domesticate them. And he says here he was so enveloped by envy that he was almost like an animal before God. Right? But here is where you get to see the marvel of God's unconditional love, that while he was like an animal before God, God's unconditional love still remains steadfast. Here's verse 23. Nevertheless, despite my brutish behavior, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. And then so God is the one who holds him, but not only just holds him, he guides him in verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you receive me to glory, right? That God is still faithful in the midst of that trial, even in this valley. God still holds him, and he walks with him. And then he says this, and he says that God is the one who captivates him. In, in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. It's only when he sees God for who he is, all of a sudden he realizes, I don't desire anything on earth. There is no scale that's going to weigh more than what God can actually give me. Right here, he says, this is a rhetorical question. The clear answer is that no one but God is sustainer. And then verse 26, my heart, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength and my heart and my, of my heart and my portion forever. That word portion is a word of inheritance. He's actually saying with God, I have better inheritance than what I see here on earth. Right? Verse 27 to 28 is actually where he then concludes, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is faith unfaithful to you. Can you see what the trial was? It was a trial of faithfulness. Right? You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, can everybody say, but for me? This is what every trial brings for us. We have to get to that point where we say, but for me, what am I going to do? In the midst of this trial, we have to get to a point where we say, but for me, it is good to be near God. 
what the psalmist discovers here is going to be this one thing, that true prosperity is proximity to God, not proximity to things. That true prosperity is proximity to God, not proximity to things. As long as I have God, I have everything else. And so, you see, now he comes to a very strong conclusion. This is actually the conclusion. It is good. He began to say, listen, truly God is good. But not only that, God is good. God is good for me. Like, right, it is, he is good for me. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And I love this because what we do for God comes from us having to embed ourselves, what? In his goodness, his nearness, right? Like, and he, we can be near him. And it's so interesting because here, what we get to see is that it's only telling of his works after he has been near God. Right, And this is where you see Martha and Mary, where Jesus is going to say to, to, to Martha, listen, Mary has chosen the right thing to be near me first before she does for me. Right. So I've got a couple of conclusions for us. Right. For us. I've walked through this, outlined it. Right. And then these are some of the applications for us here. I'm going to apply it in two ways, something we have to do defensively and something that we have to do offensively. And so defensively, what we have to do is to guard the focus of our heart more often. According to this psalm, we have to guard the focus of our heart often. Why? Because if you, if you can indulge me for a second, and this is actually where we have to get to, that yes, we are creatures of desire, that our desire is always going to be, that, that our desire is always going to move us either, either towards envy or desiring God himself. But like, so, so we are creatures of desire. Our goal, the goal of Christian worship is to get us to verse 25 that says, whom do I have in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth but you. We're not going to be like Buddhists that empty ourselves of desire. It's actually keeping, according to St. Augustine, it's, it's ordering our loves to make sure that we love God with everything first, above everything, right? And so if you can look, the, the trial of our faith happens more in our hearts. This whole psalm here is a trial of, of the psalmist's heart. And even for us, your faith, is gonna, your faith and your faithfulness are going to be tried, especially in your heart, more than anything. So if you can look, the word heart is actually repeated six times in here, where you're going to see it, where in verse 1, it's those that are pure in heart, Right? And then when he looks, he sees the heart of the wicked overflowing with follies in verse 7. And then if you see uh, in verse 13, that's when he begins to regret that his heart had been kept what, in vain. In verse 21, you get to see he begins to have this sour heart, right? And then in verse 26, he admits that his heart had flatlined. It had failed. And then he says that it's God who strengthens his heart in verse 26 as well. 
So in fact, this whole psalm is actually, if you can really summarize it, it's a heart. It tells a tale of the fact that our hearts are prone to be seduced by things all around us. But then they can be healed only in God. They, 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 they can be isolated, isolated by things all around us, but they can only be restored in, in fellowship with other brethren in the, in, in the sanctuary, right? And then so the only way we can move out of disorientation is only when we come and we begin to behold what God has done. Our hearts are like, going to be like dogs that play to whoever has a bone. Yeah. Right, And that's actually where Jesus is going to come and he's going to say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And for me, that's actually even every wrestle, every single thing, whatever it is that we, that we have around us that comes in and tries to uh, manipulate us and tries to call for our focus, at the end of the day, what is the main destruction? When he is focusing on the wicked, it's actually he is taking his eyes off God. And he is focusing on the wicked, taking his eyes off God. And here what we get to see Jesus is going to say, he's going to say, as long as you keep your eyes pure, you are going to see God. But every sin, every single trial comes in and tries to take you away from seeing God clearly. And then all of a sudden takes you. It's almost like, it's almost like if you go and you watch. For example, uh, I, I, I did my seminary in Dallas, Texas, and where we were very close to the Cowboy Stadium. Sorry for the Eagles in here and all those uh, Pittsburgh. I don't know wherever you are, but like Dallas is better. But anyway, we're just like... Um, but I was right close to the stadium where literally like the cheapest tickets are the nosebleed section tickets. Right? But it's at some point in there... You begin to say, why did I even come here? Because all I'm doing is watching this big TV in front of me. Because like, if I'm trying to see what's happening, I'm squinting my eyes. And I'm just, I can't see what's happening down there. So I just resolved it's better just to watch it from my house, even though the stadium was like four or five minutes away. Right? It's better. And so I want to kind of just like really help us with this. Sin desires to take you. you. You may stay in the house of the Lord. You will stay in the house of, but sin desires to take you from the front row seats. This is what Jesus has done at the cross. Jesus emptied, emptied, emptied himself. God sent his own son, died so that he could buy you what? A salvation that's going to take you, put you on the front row of what God is doing and what God is doing in your life. You are a full son and a full daughter adopted by his precious blood. And he puts you on the front row to see his wonderful works of what he wants to do in your life and in the world around you. But then sin is going to come in and try to demote you back into the nosebleed section where you're constantly, where envy is, 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 is coating your heart. And, and, and then all, all of a sudden you're sitting in the nosebleed section and you can't see God clearly anymore. And it was him entering into the sanctuary. So guard your heart more often. The focus of your heart 
especially from idolatry. Especially from idolatry. What is idolatry? G.K. Bill says this, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Right? Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. Whatever your heart clings to and relies on for ultimate security, whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. So for some of us, maybe it's that 401k, it's retirement, maybe it's a college degree, maybe it's actually what, satisfaction, significance or security or whatever it is. What is it that has a grip on your heart that literally drowns you in fear? If that was to be taken away from you in an instant, your whole life collapses. What is that? If that has taken the focus of your heart, all of a sudden, you will find that's actually a magnet for envy. That's a magnet for envy. And all of a sudden, you will find yourself, it's going to take you from seeing God clearly. I've discovered whether it's actually addiction or whatever it is, I always ask, what's the catch? What is it that you're trying to get out of my life? There's just some things that I, I even at this moment, I'm 38 years old, we were talking with Pastor Matt, and I was saying, hey, like, there's just some things I want introduced in my life. Like, for example, like, uh, I have lots of friends that drink beer all around me or smoke cigars or do some things. And, like, my excuse is always, like, I'm just scared I might like it. Like, I saw, I just won't introduce it in my life because I'm scared I might like it. And if I like it, I don't know how much I'm going to have to put into that. And I just like, I'm, I'm at this place where I'm just like, yeah, I've kept all my hobbies and I've kept them under control. We're good to go, right? I just don't need new ones, right? So we're just good. There are just some things that like I just won't dive into just because I'm scared. I, I just don't know what else just might hold me down there right? But offensively, this is what we have to do. Offensively, place your heart often in a place where God's goodness is seen in a new light. So defend your heart. But then offensively, place your heart. And there's, there's a beauty in this psalm where there's a power of discipleship, especially discipleship. What you have done this morning, coming in here, you're placing your heart in a place where God's goodness can actually what? Shine in a new light. What do we do in order for the sin of envy not to settle in our hearts? We have to make sure that we take our hearts and we bring them where God can declare himself as the one who is faithful, who is steadfast, who is forgiving of your iniquities, the one who is good and whose mercy endures forever, the one who is for you, who is not against you, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, and the one who you're going to see that there's nothing that will separate you from his love. You need to place yourself. And there's a beauty in the gospel, in the fact that every single morning, his mercies are new. So how, how do we do that? Every single morning, listen, your most desperate need is to wake up every morning, whether you feel like it or not feel like it, and place yourself at the cleft of the rock. 
thank God that now we don't have to climb a mountain. Now we have the Holy Spirit poured inside within us. And now we have Jesus who daily intercedes for us. And the Spirit who invites us. My heart says, seek your face. And your face I will seek God. That you wake up to that new welcome. It doesn't matter where you've been last night, what you've done. And listen, His mercy abounds for you and me. Place your heart, your, your most desperate need, husband, your most desperate need, wife, is to wake up and to behold Jesus. Right? 2 Corinthians 3, 8, 10, beholding his what? His glory. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so here we see the only way for him to break what? The sin of envy in his life until I entered the sanctuary. That is actually where, and it says this, then I understood. It's like taking a shower every single day. So how do we do that? Could you just wake up every morning? The beauty of having your Bible and Bible reading plan is for you to place yourself at the cleft. Begin to ask, who are you, God? And who am I in light of this text? Man, I'm a sinner. This is what I'm being convicted of. But you're good. And I see this is who you are. But God, now that I've realized all these sins, what do I do? Thank God there's Jesus. And he has taken all those things. And he has taken them. And he has drawn them into, into this sea of, 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 of what? Of forgetfulness where he's just thrown my sins as far as I, could ever, as I could ever imagine. And then now, and then begin to invite the Spirit. Could you transform me in this way? I want to be patient. I snapped at my kids. I want to like, listen, I, I, want to, I, want to be, I want to be loving to my neighbors. I want to, could you transform me in this way? And, and in the, you know what? All those are yes and amen. Then I understood. There's transformation there, right? And we always neglect. So placing yourself under the word of God, we always neglect gathering together. He says, I went to the sanctuary. To, who do you think was rehearsing to him the goodness of God? It was others. And there sometimes, this is what I tell, you know, we, we're in Pennsylvania where we have uh, central PA where I am. There's addiction running rampant, right? And I tell all my friends who are recovering, I say, I know you might have messed up last night, but I want you to come to church. And I want you to hear the confessions. I want you to hear. Sometimes, sometimes, listen, the reason why we sing is no longer just singing for ourselves. This is why I love Ephesians 5. It says, how do we get filled by the Spirit? We're singing to God, but it also sings, says we're singing for one another. There are some times when I'm so weak and I need to hear other people singing around me. And there are some times when I look around and I see that person who recovered from cancer, that one who was delivered from addiction, that one, and all of a sudden I begin to understand who God is. Where there's singing and rehearsing of God's goodness all around us. Amen? That's actually how he gets to understand. 
And he realizes that God is with him. He is with him. I'm close. I'm going to close with the, with this. One of the things that this these past two weeks for me have been really just kind of um, just heroic because I've been with five kids by myself, uh, and they've survived. They're still alive. They're well fed. Yeah, yesterday I kind of just I took them to the zoo, uh, to to the wildlife uh, uh, park, and it was just awesome. But um, I took them to on Tuesday. I took them to um, took them to this place where this and the way where we're just jumping off a cliff. I wasn't trying to kill my kids. Uh, just clear water, and we we're playing. And my son, the, the, the youngest one, Liam, um, after we just we were diving into this thing and just playing, we got to this place where there was a lot of rocks. And he began to ask me, and he was like, we began to throw some rocks. And he began, he was like, Dada, could you pick this one up? And then so I realized that the game was getting just interesting because he kept on saying, could you pick this one up? And then he kept on going to bigger and bigger rocks, just bigger. And before you know it, I'm picking up like just literally like I'm having. They're like, I felt like I was in CrossFit again, picking up sandbags. And so I'm picking up these big rocks and they're making just big like just noises. And he's just like, could you pick? And eventually I got to a point where I was saying, Son, I don't think I can pick that one. I don't think I can pick that one. But he's like, but why? I think you can. There is something about Scripture and something about beholding God that snaps us out of just all the sins that want to grip of our heart when we begin to look and we see like for my son, he was looking at me and he thinks I'm infinitely strong. But there's something about when we go and we begin to look in the sanctuary and where we begin to look and we see a God who is infinitely strong, who can move every mountain. But not only that, when we behold God and we see him and his goodness and we begin to say, God, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing that I desire besides you. Surely my heart and my flesh. Listen, I'm not going to trust my heart and my flesh anymore. Many times will fail, but God, you remain the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Right? As for me, it is good to be near God. You know why? Because I have found the one who can snap me out of my delusion, who can snap me out of any sin, who can resurrect me from anything that holds onto me. And like Paul, all of us now can be able to say, listen, everything I counted as gain, today I counted as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection. And you know what? Even in suffering, he still fellowships with me. I, I want to know him. And if this is the only prize I have, 
so be it. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And God, I pray that, Lord, for all of us in here, that, God, you would help us, God, to see that our nearness to you is our good, that everything that we need is in you through your Son and through the Spirit's work in our lives. Could you press in your word into our hearts so that, Lord, today, whatever we have held on to, whatever has built envy into our hearts, would begin to evaporate in the light of your words and your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.